to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. My name is Kate. And I'm Molly. And today Kate is going to tell me about a book, and I don't even know what it is yet. (gasps) Surprise, surprise! Okay, so today we are talking about Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieter. Ooh, okay. A fan of what? Like a fan... Oh, we're going to get into it. <laughs> like, yeah, wait. Ominous. Dun, dun, dun. Spooky season. <laughs> Happy October. We're going to talk about some terrible people. Okay, well, I'll, let me give the summary yes. and then we will get into it. So Claire Dieter is uh, the author of two memoirs, Poser and Love and Trouble. Her third book, Monsters, is a complex, thoughtful response to a short question. What do we do with the art of monstrous men? She explores our responses to art that we love, that's been stained by the actions of the art maker. She asks whether we can continue to love it once it's been stained by the maker's actions, if we should continue to love it, and how we balance our moral outrage with our equally undeniable love of the work. Mm. Uh, So she first took up this topic in a viral essay of uh, the same question. Uh, So the essay was named What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men, Mm. which was published in November of 2017 in the wake of the Me Too movement. Mm. Uh, So this book is deeply personal while also being one of the more incisive criticisms I have read in past years. Nice. So. Ooh, I'm so excited. Content warning. Dudes being terrible ahead. So if you don't want to hear about that, you can peace out now. Um, But otherwise, let's get into it. I'm um, ready to shit on men. Just kidding. I love men, but I am very upset with a few of them for more than a few of them for some things that they've done. More than a few of them. Uh, so I guess my first question for you is, this is a question we have talked about before, which is what do we do with the art of people who've done monstrous things? Uh, so do you have any sort of like philosophy or ideas that help guide your actions in this realm? Or is it something that you've just thought about and you've never really come to sort of a answer, so to say? Hmm. I feel like I have an answer for myself, but it's not like a formula that can be applied to everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is a very like case by case basis. And I think like, the circumstances, the actions, the context, all of it matters. And also like the time in which it happened. So mm-hmm. I am much more comfortable enjoying and talking about and experiencing like um, art from the Renaissance or the French Revolution. And all of that shit is from men. Like because women were not allowed into the spaces. They were not allowed to see um, the naked human form to painted so they were never given the ability to become that level of master artist that we worship in museums today and some of them managed to break through in various ways but the reason we always talk about male artists is because women were shut out from that that doesn't prevent me from enjoying and wanting to like look at and experience the art though Mm -hmm. 
But I feel like when we're talking more about like modern examples, I think like Louis C.K. is a good one. Like I think you don't have to enjoy it anymore. Like you, if you, or sorry, if you do enjoy it still, that's okay. But I don't feel like I need to defend the artist because his art is good or like defend my choice to listen to something just because someone was like a terrible person who did it. I just think it is very much like based on how you feel about the thing and what you're willing to like entertain still. And Mm -hmm. I just, I don't feel like I advocate one way or the other for like separate the artist from his art or like it all has to be considered. I just feel like some things I'm like, yeah, I'm fucking done with that shit. Cause I don't like that person. And some things I'm willing to like continue entertaining because it really meant something to me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I'm similar in that. Like I don't have any hard and fast rules that I follow because I think it's very difficult to make that determination across different kinds of art and artists and yeah. different kinds of bad deeds. Uh which is something that she gets into in the book. So we will dive a little bit deeper into this. Um, so I think the first chapter, it's important to note that, uh, well, I would say the first couple of chapters, um, she talks about basically like why, what are the things that makes this an important thing to talk about right now? Um, so she starts the book out talking about why she took up the topic and like her personal connection. And I will say that everything in this book is very grounded in her personal experiences. And she's a woman who's, I think, the oldest Gen Xer. So she was born mm. in like, you know, 65 or something like that. Okay. Um, and so, uh, and she's a white woman. Um, she had previously worked as a film critic. So all of those things obviously inform her perspective. She currently lives in Seattle, uh, and has lived there for, I think, a, a very long time. So it's important to just kind of get those fundamental characteristics of the author, like out of the way to talk about because, um, everything that follows is a direct relationship to the things that inform the rest of her identity right Right. so um so the first chapter she talks about how she's a huge fan of roman polanski um who uh, is a french and polish director who won multiple oscars for his work uh he directed rosemary's baby and chinatown among other notable movies uh, and he also drugged a 13-year-old girl, raped her vaginally and anally. Uh, and so she describes being personally invested in his art because she loved it and had such a personal connection to it. Mm-hmm. But that everything that she watches of his is stained yeah. by his actions. Yeah, totally. So she, you know, talks about having like a, a vested interest in this because she so much of the art of people who have done terrible things are things that she deeply connected with and, and loves. Um, which I think is relatable. Rosemary's baby is actually one of my favorite movies. And so I completely understand that. I want to set the stage a little bit of how she's defining things. So she defines a monster, uh, as an artist who could not be separated from some dark aspect of his or her biography. Mm. Um, so she kind of talks about like not wanting to just write this book as a catalog of a bunch of monsters. Um, 
And she has this quote where she says, I didn't want to compile a catalog of monsters. After all, wasn't the history of art simply already that? (laughs) I had a dawning realization. I was trying to find out not about the artist, but about the audience. Polanski had become not his own problem, but my problem. I had a glimmer of a thought. I wanted to write an autobiography of the audience. So she's kind of talking about, like, not just this, you know, figure of a creator that has done a terrible thing, but how does that influence us and how does that shape the way that we receive whatever they've created? Yeah, yeah, totally. It reminds me a little bit of, I think I've talked about this before, that I used to be really into true crime podcasts and things, and I just had kind of a change in the last five years or so where I find it actually kind of upsetting and gross. Um, But I think what I've always found interesting about true crime is the way as much as they try not to, and they try to center the victim, so to speak, it is always about the perpetrator and the fascination, curiosity, and, you know, whatever attracts us to that darkness is about the person who did the thing, not Mm -hmm. the people that were harmed by it. And I think that's the piece that I can never reconcile about true crime is that no matter what you do, it always exalts in a very weird way, the most disgusting actions and people that we have known in society. Yeah. And she talks about that later in the book of, you know, this kind of aura of the genius, which uh, is basically a persona in which we are forgiving uh, someone for being terrible because they are a genius. Yeah. And so I think, and the example she uses for that are, is uh, Hemingway and Picasso. Mm. Um, and I think what she posits is that part of what we're drawn to is like the badness of that person. Mm -hmm. And like, maybe we came up with the concept of genius to Mm. cover our tracks and have a reason (laughs) to be able to say like, I'm really attracted to this person or this person's art. Um, and not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is like a, an interesting concept. I'm not sure if I'm like fully on board with that, but I I thought it was interesting. interesting. Yeah. So uh, she also talks about, like, what monster implies that, you know, it's a person that's terrible and that it's someone who is othered, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is, like, kind of an important part of the conversation. Uh, And then the dark aspect that she refers to uh, in someone's biography is what she refers to as a stain. So examples, other examples that she uses is, like, Michael Jackson, Woody Allen, um, and she writes about the fact that the stain happens to us and we're just sort of like Mm. left to respond to it. We don't get to control how much we know about someone's life in this day and age, especially given social media and um, the way that trials and information about trials gets distributed on social media. So she has a quote here where she says, Um, The tainting of the work is less a question of philosophical decision-making than it is a question of pragmatism or plain reality. That's why the stain makes such a powerful metaphor. Its suddenness, its permanence, and above all, its inexorable realness. Uh, The stain is simply something that happens. The stain is not a choice. The stain is not a decision we make. Indelibility is not voluntary. Which I think is like the same way that I've experienced a lot of this of learning of 
someone's uh, terrible actions uh, in relation to their artwork. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, like, what is um, the last person or artist that you've had this experience with of having something terrible happen and then really realizing that after you know that knowledge you can't really forget it like it's just in there forever and whenever you associate that person you think of whatever terrible action that they committed um I feel like this isn't as it's not as on the level as like Roman Polanski but I used to really love John Mulaney he's a comedian and yeah I just thought he was very funny and in a in a way that was never like punching down, which I hate when comedians are like that. Um, But then he went through this really like messy divorce and there was like possibility that he cheated or it was just like very suspect. And I think he hurt his ex-wife a lot. And there was this interview that he did where he was talking about his like struggles with addiction. He's had to go to rehab a few times and he was talking about how his new wife, I think they're married and she got pregnant and that that's the timeline that's very suspect. It's like, when did you get pregnant exactly? Because it seems like maybe it was while you were still married. <laughs> um, and he was talking about how his new wife and that baby saved him. And I just imagined like being the ex-wife and seeing like this person that you thought you were going to have your whole life with being like, yeah, this whole new person and a baby that we had together is what saved me. And just being like, oh, so I didn't mean literally anything to you got it like I just felt like that was handled really badly and I was really disappointed in the way he behaved and the choices he made so I've actually since then he's had a new Netflix special come out and I just like Mm -hmm. couldn't watch it because I just felt so disappointed in him and I know maybe that's just me being like a little bit overly like needing my comedians to be not real people um But I don't know, it just kind of felt like it hit me personally in a way that was like painful. So I, um, yeah, that's the last one I can think of. Yeah, I I think that you or anyone should not be required to watch or listen to art that you find painful. (laughs) That's not something anyone has to do. And I think it's just a good example of how I don't have control over the way it makes me feel and that like now I can't watch his stand up and enjoy it because I feel Mm -hmm. like he kind of sucks. Yeah. So I think that's the the stain thing that you're describing Mm -hmm. where I just don't have control over it and I might want to overcome that feeling to enjoy it again, but I just am not really able to. Yeah. I also, so one of the other things she talks about, which I think is really important and we don't talk about this enough. It's something that actually makes me deeply uncomfortable um which is that fan culture like that Mm. of uh harry potter is the example that she uses Mm. in the book um creates a like a lot of parasocial relationships or like the belief that we have a real emotional connection with the artists that we love and not just their art and uh, I think her her quotes in this chapter were really good and important. So she writes that an audience member is a consumer of a piece of art. The audience member is not defined by that piece of art. A fan, on the other hand, is a consumer plus, a consumer beyond, a consumer who is also being consumed. She steals part of her identity from the art, even as it steals its importance from her. She becomes defined by the art. A fan has a special role and bestows upon herself a special status, a status that cultural producers are happy to co-opt, distribute, sell, and monetize. Mm. Of course, it is something that comes up 
when we talk about J.K. Rowling and her remarks about uh, trans people and how she has become very hateful and her language is, I would say, very violent towards trans people, um, particularly trans women. And the other thing that it makes me think about, though, is even just like the fandom of Taylor Swift or Beyonce or these kind of larger than life figures where people truly have a feeling that they know that person, which I think then leads to people not being able to articulate, yes, this person has done something wrong and I still love their art, as opposed to being able to say that, they're like, no, this person didn't do anything wrong because I love them and they just wouldn't do that. Yeah. And I really want us as a society to have this conversation more that you can have someone who is a good friend who can still be a rapist. You can have someone who is a good father that can still be misogynistic. You can have someone who is, you know, a great mother to you as a white woman, but is also racist. Like there are all kinds of ways in which the people that we love are not good to others. And I think it's important to talk about that and be able to say that. Yeah. Well, and it's especially problematic I think when it is about someone that you don't actually know and only yeah like have that parasocial relationship where you are you know deluding yourself into believing that you do know them and maybe that's what they want they want you to feel like you know them because that helps mm-hmm. them sell their art but I, yeah I think Taylor Swift is a really good example of that and I think about it from like the perspective of the artist sometimes too and the like insane pressure that that must be to like maintain the identity that your fans expect of you mm-hmm. um and and i think we see examples of when the artist is not able to maintain that identity but in very innocuous ways and then yeah. their fan base kind of turning on them in in this like very rabid and frenzied way so it's it's a very strange dynamic that is yeah I mean, not to put you on the spot, but I did watch John Mulaney's new special. And one of the yeah. things he says in there, which I wish he would have explored a little bit more, is um, he says likability is a jail. And mm. I think, like, for his persona, for people like Ellen, um, for these like people who are kind of seen as, like, our brand is kindness and yeah. community. Lizzo is a good example. Um, there's There's always, like a piece of them that can't possibly live up to that persona because like no one is fully kind a hundred percent of the time and has never done or said anything bad. And so like, I think that is really interesting to me too, of like people who have built their brand and persona publicly around being kind or being a quote unquote good person and then have a really long way to like fall or stumble when something does come out later that like, yeah, of course they're not perfect. They're human being, you know? Um, And in the case of like some people like Ellen were actually really terrible to the people that they worked closely with. Uh, So yeah, I I think that is something that I think about too, is like not just the, the fan part of it, but just like, the likability and then defensiveness that comes from that. Yeah. No, I think it's like we should always interrogate when we feel disappointed in a celebrity or public figure like that. 
like, do we actually have the right to be disappointed in them for these actions? Do we really know enough about the situation and their internal lives and relationships to be on that, like, self-righteous place and be like, oh, my God, I'm so disappointed in this behavior? Like, sometimes we don't. Like, I wouldn't say that I really know enough about Mulaney's life to be as disappointed in him as I am. Um, but I still feel but that still disappointing. <laughs> you know, based on what I yeah. know, it feels very disappointing to me. Yeah. So it's and to be clear, like I'm not trying to change your opinion at all, but it, that is, I think his persona very much fits yes, into that. Like, it does, idea. and it has made my feelings that much more intense because yeah. it's like, but you were supposed to be such a good guy. Yeah, you know, yeah, you were and supposed to be one of the good ones. Yeah, yeah. and that like can really. <laughs> amplify that feeling of disappointment when someone's brand is like being a good guy yeah so in addition to kind of like these uh social aspects that are sort of swirling around in this particular moment um she does write about how she was a critic and how when she was writing about movies in the early 90s that there were a lot of male critics that kind of insinuated that she couldn't be objective because she's a woman and Obviously, there's a lot to get into there. There's so much written and talked about about this so-called idea of objectivity, which I'm not going to get into. But um, she does have this section that I really liked and wanted to read. Uh, So she writes, and so like many or most women, I have a dog in this particular fight. She's uh, writing here about... Uh, Roman Polanski. Mm -hmm. When I ask what to do about the art of monstrous men, I'm not just sympathizing with their victims. I've been in the same shoes or similar. I have the memory of these monstrous things being done to me. I don't Mm -hmm. come to these questions with a coldness or a dispassionate view. I come as a sympathizer to the accusers. I am the accusers. And yet I want to consume the art because out in front of all of that, I'm a human. It's not a philosophical query. It's an emotional one. Mm. So this sort of sets her up for, I think, like the rest of the book, which is to talk about what are we really contending with here? And a lot of it is our emotional response to what is going on when we view or choose to view or choose not to view a particular movie that involves somebody who's done a monstrous thing or listen to a song that is by Michael Jackson or whatever, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then I think... Oftentimes, when someone sets out to write a book like this, there's this expectation that you you must be objective on a topic like this. But it's like, um, shut up. That is not possible. That's so stupid to even <laughs> suggest that any human being could be objective about any fucking topic. So I like that she kind of sets it up in the beginning where it's like, I'm not objective, but that does not negate anything that I'm about to tell you. Yeah. and And like, I'm coming to this as a lot of audience members are, which is like... To say I have a dog in this fight, this impacts me because like what you're talking about, like this is something that impacted me because I have a life experience that's directly relevant to this. And so that is something that is obviously going to hit me harder than it's going to hit somebody else. Right. So like the idea that there's some objective answer to this is not something she posits at all. Well, and I think sometimes there's this expectation that like, well, only people who haven't been affected by the topic are the ones who should be talking about it. And it's like, no, actually it's the opposite. Yeah. The people who are affected are the ones who understand it and can talk about it the best. So let's let them and shut up. Shut up. And, and like by saying something like that, you're like 
silencing people who have already been silenced in so many ways yeah. because you're silencing a group of people that have been victimized once and you know you're doing it again on a different topic and it's like just let them speak like what is it about that that is so difficult i don't know so then she uh gets into a little bit about like the different ways in which she sees this playing out through different artists. Um, so she writes about how some people are immune to the stain, and we call those people geniuses. So Ernest Hemingway and Pablo Picasso are the examples she uses here. Uh, should we be willing to forgive monstrous actions in the face of a creative genius or creativity and art that has helped shape the world? And then, as I mentioned, she suggests that maybe we invented the quality of genius to justify our attraction to bad human behavior to begin with. And maybe we are thinking about this uh, the other way around. She also talks about uh, Virginia Woolf, Willa Cather, and Richard Wagner and their anti-Semitism. Mm. I think that her thesis for this chapter was more about how we as a, I should say, she defines herself as liberal and she talks about how liberals see um, us as a society in 2023 being better than we previously were and that the idea of liberalism is that we're constantly getting better and we're improving. Um, but then kind of questions that like, People who were uh, anti-Semitic in previous eras didn't weren't aware that that's what they were doing. And she kind of yeah. challenges that and says, like, you know, we're really seduced by the idea that things are better now and we know better. But the truth is that, like, a lot of times in history, people knew better then, but they didn't want to admit it <laughs> or, like, yeah. went in another direction. And yeah. Um, I will say, I do think there was a missed opportunity here because she doesn't really talk about racism at all. And I think she definitely could have. There's, I mean, there's obviously so much racism in American art that could be touched on here. And I think I, I worked at a historic house when I was in graduate school. And one of the things that I learned when we were giving tours is that at the turn of the century, you know, we look back on some of the things that they were saying or writing about, and we would say, like, oh, that's so racist, but it's a product of their time, right? Yeah. But yeah. one of the things that was really eye-opening to me is that they were actually having conversations about what racism is and yeah. who and what was being considered racist uh, at the time. Their contemporaries were talking about this, right? Yeah. So it's not really the case that racism or like uh they they couldn't possibly be aware of how their actions were affecting other people it's that they are like excused when we look back on them retroactively because we're like oh well that's just how things were right there was no one to challenge them and it's like well that's just not true there were a lot of people who were challenging them it's just whether or not they were listened to and mm -hmm. whether or not they were taken seriously right and like oftentimes people who were enslaving other people, for example, knew that that was wrong it morally or that, that that they were enslaving people. They knew what they were doing. But the the profits, the benefits outweighed the what they saw as the negatives, which is yeah. so crazy. But it's yeah, it, I think it's very off 
space to be like, well, they just didn't realize that these were human beings. It's like, no, they, they did. They did. <laughs> yeah, that, that did. was not the problem. Yeah. I mean, the idea of racism, uh, I, I learned this from a book that I read called um, They Were Her Property. And I don't remember the artist, or I'm sorry, the author's name off the top of my head. Uh, but the idea of racism was invented to cover the tracks of mm. the so-called Christians who owned people. Yeah. People in Europe were very critical of the fact that you call yourself a Christian nation and here you are with thousands of slaves, right? Uh, and, like, that seems incongruent. And they were like, oh, well, the reason we get around that is because they're not really people, right? Yeah. And so they start to ingrain this idea of racism. But I think it's important to note that the racism came as a reaction to that, the reaction that, oh, we realize we're doing something bad, but we're going to cover it up with this new idea and not the other way around. Yeah. Um, so anyways, she doesn't talk about any of this, so I'm a little off topic, but <laughs> I do think that <laughs> there is a lot of uh, room for mm-hmm. opportunity to talk about racism, but she doesn't in really the whole book. And she actually talks about few, uh, few people of color in her artistic examples. Um, and she doesn't really talk about why that is. She doesn't say like, oh, I just didn't think I could do it justice or whatever. Um, I guess the one thing being that she is writing this from her own experiences. And so she's probably choosing the authors and artists that were most meaningful to her specifically. Yeah. And so she does write at one point, like, you know, I never watched the Cosby show, so, like, I'm not going to start now, you know, kind of thing. Like, I yeah. never listened to R. Kelly. Like, it doesn't matter. to Like, I'm not going to lose sleep over <laughs> that, right. the concept of losing his art. Um, so I think that might be a reason, but I don't know. It, it feels like there's some opportunity here that she missed. Well, and I can appreciate feeling like that is beyond the scope of what I'm trying to talk about here, but I do think it makes sense to acknowledge it at least. Yeah. Like at some point say like, listen, I'm a white woman. I'm mostly connected to like white people with the exception of Michael Jackson, I guess is, is the person that she talks about. Um, But I I don't know. Yeah. It still feels kind of weird. Cause like I'm thinking about it, like in my memoir, I talk a lot about, um, sexism in the church and i don't think i ever talk about racism but i am a white person and i never personally experienced it i'm aware that it is happening but i what am i going to do write a chapter about something i never experienced in my memoir that's weird and i feel like that makes sense but in this context it feels like i don't know it seems like worth mentioning (laughs) also like yours is explicitly a memoir where this is somewhere in between like personal essays and art criticism right and like an argument she's making about like yeah creative yeah which yeah so i don't know it feels like that could be relevant okay yeah um and so she also talks about the idea of the anti-monster so people don't necessarily have to be what they create and here she uses the example of vladimir nobakov who wrote lolita um and Lolita is I, I've never read Lolita because, again, I went to a high school where we didn't have to read. Uh, and uh, have you ever read it? Did you ever have to read it in school? No. Okay. no. Um, and so she talks about how in Lolita, Lolita's voice is never really present. And so she 
kind of argues that Nobokov here is like understanding the importance of silence and whose voices are going unheard. So like who is missing Mm -hmm. from the conversation? Um, And so she writes that as she was reading Lolita, um, I just love this blurb, so I'll just read this. So she writes, uh, Nomokov denies our attempts to do anything as crude as identifying with a character, but I had the strange experience of identifying with a silence. And Mm. so she's writing about how she identifies with the voice that's not there and how that can be powerful in itself. And I I really Mm -hmm. liked that concept a lot. Yeah, no, I I think that's, well, and sometimes we attribute that sort of choice as like genius and it was maybe just like their own bias (laughs) that was like causing it, but it can still open up this like insightful thing where they maybe didn't even mean to be like making a commentary on the silence and yet they Mm -hmm. have. Yeah. She also talks about, like, the silencers and the silenced. So the uh, example she is there is Carl Andre and uh, Anna Mendied, who were both artists. Um, Carl Andre was a minimalist sculptor, and Anna Mendieta was a performance artist. And there was a, an incident where most people believe that Carl Andre and her got into a domestic dispute because they were married, and he pushed her out the window, and she died. Yeah. Otherwise known as murder. Uh-huh. Yes, I've heard of that. <laughs> and so she talks a little bit about, like, you know, the voices that aren't there because of actions by people who have done terrible things. And then she gets into a section that I would say is my least favorite section okay. in the book, which was um, she talks about, like, all these terrible men or men who have done terrible things. And then she writes about how are women monstrous? Um, And so then she writes about how society sees women as monsters. Like, when does society deem a woman to be a monster? And she... Always. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Uh, And she writes about, like, um, choosing art over their children as being, like, a big thing that uh, society sees as monstrous. Sure. I just felt like this was, like, not that interesting to me because I've heard it a lot before. And it seems like it was a very, like, first wave white feminist uh, understanding of how society views women as monsters, when there are a lot of ways that I think you could talk about truly monstrous white women, like Roseanne Barr, for example, or Ellen I brought up earlier, or, like, I don't know, any number of people who have actually done really terrible things. I also, it feels like... I think sometimes in society we feel this pressure to do like both sides of something and it's like well if we're talking about men being shitty we should also talk about women being shitty and I agree that balance is important and you shouldn't just say that like men are terrible and women are perfect they never do anything wrong because that's not true (laughs) but I don't think that it always like when you're critiquing male behavior I don't think you always have to include critiques of female behavior like that is not necessary all the time. Mm And I don't think it's unfair to just be like, in this, I'm talking about bad male behavior. Full stop. So I don't know. That kind of annoys me, especially if it's done poorly or like kind of weakly. Yeah, I do kind of wonder if like her editor or someone gave her feedback Mm. that 
you need to address the question of like, what about women? And this was how she did it. But I just like don't totally agree that this is that true anymore. Like, mm-hmm. we've talked about this on the podcast before, but this feels like a generational divide of like, I don't know mm-hmm. any stay at home mothers, like, because that's not yeah. really available yeah. to most people in this day and age. Like most people have to work a two, two parent household mm-hmm. has to work. So I, I don't, I don't totally like know if this is true mm-hmm. for our generation that like choosing yeah. a career or not even choosing a career, but just having a career because you have to is something is considered. Monstrous. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know. I didn't love it. It kind of reminds me of the like generational divide between like, um, Queen Elizabeth and Meghan Markle. It's like depending on which one you think is the monster. Oh, it tells yeah. you what like generation you're from. Uh, it's like a BuzzFeed quiz. We'll tell you how old you are depending on this question. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I don't know. There's that, and I felt that was less compelling for me personally. Uh, so then she gets into a little bit of like, okay, so what am I not seeing when? I monster the monstrous men. So when I say that someone is monstrous, like what am I not seeing or considering when that's uh, Mm -hmm. true? So she talks a little bit about her own personal struggles with alcoholism and uses Raymond Carver as an example in the like uh, artist realm Uh, and talks about how like monsters are still in fact just people uh, and so she mm-hmm. writes, recovery tells us more than the... the okay, sorry. Let me re- reread that. So she writes, recovery tells us we're more than the worst thing we've ever done. The idea of redemption is crucial to the survival of the drunk, the addict, who must believe in the future that... Who must believe in a future that is at least a little free of what she was. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a piece that we as a society haven't really grappled with yet, which is like, okay, we know that these, that people have done terrible things and like what now, right? Like, is there some sort of redemption that someone can go through? What does that look like? What do we expect? And how is that related to the terrible action that they committed? Um, Are there different rules for different people? Like, you know, what, what do we expect um, in other words, and I would say most people expect more than the like notes app apology that has become its own trope, but yeah, curious what you think about that. Yeah. I, I kind of am struck with this feeling of like, maybe this is like kind of boomery of me. I don't know. Maybe that's not the right word, but I just, I feel like we expect too much out of celebrities and artists sometimes where like I don't know like we need them to be morally above reproach and we need them to be everything that we thought they were and always authentic and never human in any ways and then when they aren't even like in small and big ways not just the real atrocities Mm -hmm. we want them to apologize to us and make amends And I think that desire across the board of like, even in small ways, when people mess up, we demand the notes app apology and the like tearful Instagram, like, I'm so sorry. And like all this shit that 
it's like we have asked them to apologize so in such a huge way for small things what is someone supposed to do when it's an actual big thing? Yeah, when it's like, a crime. There, it seems like, yeah, that there's nothing they can do. And, like, sometimes I think what they can do is just go to fucking prison and pay for their crimes. You know? But then when there's, like, that middle ground of, like, this was really, really terrible, but it wasn't actually a crime. I think in that way, we're kind of at a loss. Because we've asked people to apologize so excessively for small infractions that when it's like kind of in that middle band of like really bad but not a crime we have no idea what to do with it or how they can come back and make amends because we we just are so all over the place with it so i don't really know like i think personally i'm just kind of like until it's like reaching that level of criminality i kind of don't care and i will just feel what i feel and i don't expect an authentic Mm -hmm. apology from someone who is mentally warped by celebrity you know because they probably don't even have it yeah. in them to they're apologizing for fear of losing their the life that they know not because they really want to make change and i just like don't need that out of celebrities i guess but i don't know maybe that's like very cynical of me no i i kind of i mean i agree i think like there's this weird cognitive dissonance for me because of the parasocial relationships where if a man sexually assaulted someone else I we somehow feel like he needs to make an apology to me his consumer and it's like yeah, no yeah, yeah. You, you don't need to apologize to me you need to apologize to the woman you sexually assaulted and make amends to her right like that's not I you didn't do anything to me specifically except now I feel disappointed that you did this action but like you apologizing to me for being disappointed is on such a minuscule level compared to making amends with the person you actually victimized that like that is not really it it feels like a cop-out in some ways to like go on Instagram and make a tearful apology to like me the person who's viewing this video as opposed to like the person you actually hurt. Um, and it felt that way recently. I don't know if you followed the Danny Masterson trial. Mm, a little bit. So yeah. the show, that 70s show, Danny Masterson, uh, Mila Kunis, and Ashton Kutcher were all stars. Uh, Danny Masterson was um, accused and then and convicted of uh, raping uh, two women. It was also bound with his Scientology practices, which silenced the women even more. Gross. And uh, he drugged them. It was like a very horrific crime. And reading through the details of it made me physically nauseous. And then during the trial, Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher wrote letters to the judge defending his character and saying that he but he's such a good father sending him to jail would be a travesty in and of itself and it's like then after there was public outrage from the letters being publicly released because they're court documents and they were going to be seen by people other than the judge uh then they got on line and they made a tearful like apology video and it's just like what are we doing here? Like, so you're apologizing to us and not the women who had to sit in the courtroom knowing that you still support the actions of a person who raped them? Yeah, it's like, 
yeah, I do not understand that stuff where it's like, but they have a child. And it's like, do you think those women probably have children too? Or they might. Or maybe they would have if they hadn't been fucking raped. But like, also, is it not sort so... of irrelevant? Like, yeah, it just, it seems like, what does this have to do with the horrible, horrible choice and action that this person did? Like, yeah. They're like, well, let's not cause more suffering. And it's like, that is not how this works. <laughs> yeah. But again, like, I'm just. Just asking for people to be able to hold two things, which is like, maybe he is a fantastic father and also a rapist, but one does not mean the other is not true. Like, yeah, those can both be true things, but he, it does not mean that just because he is a good father, he shouldn't be held accountable for his rape. Right. Well, and it's not like, it's not a punishment to the child. It is justice for the women that he attacked, you know, and we see it as like, oh, well, you shouldn't punish the child. And it's like, we're not punishing the child. We're punishing the perpetrator. And these women deserve justice. And that kid deserves a good life. But it's not these women's fault or the judge's fault or whatever for him not having that. It's the father's yeah. fault, you know, and it's so weird and entangled. Yeah. And, and also, I think like holding someone accountable from the standpoint of Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher is an act of love and saying like, I love yeah. you, but what you did is not okay. And I will not stop loving you because you did it because I found out that this happened, but I, I want you to know that I don't agree with this. And this was, this was yeah. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that shouldn't be, yeah, I think there's a problem that we have in society where we're not able to like, do two things at once like you said because it we just have to compartmentalize things and be like well I don't really think he's that type of person because we can't figure out how to continue loving someone who has done something so horrific mm -hmm. and I think that's actually what we need to spend our energy on is figuring out how do we love someone and hold them accountable at the same time even when society tells us that's not possible because it is and that's actually what real love is about versus like excusing and denying reality. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of like where I've landed as well and leads us to this section at the end, which I've sort of um, decided to name. What do we do with our broken hearts? Because what the real question morphs into is not what do we do with the art of monstrous men, but what do we do with being heartbroken that we love things that people who have done terrible things created. And so uh, I'll write this or I'll read this last section here where she speaks to that a little bit. So she writes, there's not some correct answer. You are not responsible for finding it. Your feeling of responsibility is a shibboleth of reinforcement of your tragically limited role as a consumer. There's no authority and there should be no authority. You are off the hook. You are inconsistent. You do not need to have a grand unified theory about what to do about Michael Jackson. You are a hypocrite over and over. You love Annie Hall, but you can barely stand to look at a painting by Picasso. You are not responsible for solving this unreconciled contradiction. In fact, you will solve nothing by means of your consumption. The idea that you can is a dead end. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I feel like that's literally what we said at the mm -hmm. beginning, where it's like, we just know for ourselves what we can tolerate and what we can't. And we don't expect anyone else to adhere to our weird philosophy we've decided on. For yeah. Ourselves. Yeah. Um, because basically what she's 
asking is like, what do we do about the terrible people we love? And there's no easy answer to that question. So I'll leave with this quote, which she writes, um, love is not reliant on judgment, but on a decision to set judgment aside. Love is anarchy. Love is chaos. We don't love the deserving. We love flawed and imperfect human beings in an emotional logic that belongs to an entirely different weather system than the chilly climate of reason, which I think is very poignant and true um, and, and definitely doesn't quote unquote solve anything, but is a really important acknowledgement whenever we're having these sorts of conversations. Yeah. Well, and I think it is really helps to hold that in your mind that love is chaos yeah. because we want it to be very straightforward and it's like, well, this is what you have to do and this is the right thing. And it's like, no, there's no, no idea what you're supposed to do. It's a whole yep. mess. Yep, exactly. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about this topic, um, I read a book called Wannabe by Aisha Harris, who is one of the cultural critics for NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. So if you're into oh, yeah. criticism, I would recommend that. It was a fun book. But I also listened to a podcast called The Stacks, and it's a podcast about books. And they actually discussed uh, this book. So this is kind of fun. So you can listen to our conversation and then you can go and listen to that conversation where both of the women who were on the podcast that day are, are black women. So you can hear it from their perspective and what they thought of the book. So yeah. I love that. Nice. Okay. Well, thanks Kate. Yeah. And thank you everyone for being here as always. I hope you join us next time for more of our bullshit. Yay. <laughs>